Welcome to Resilience Unraveled, your regular guide sharing tools and expertise to build a life full of positivity and possibility. Here's your host, Russell Thackeray. So today I'm talking to Judith Roberts. Judith and I are going to have a free-form, free-fly conversation, aren't we, Judith? It's going to be yes, fascinating. And um, I, I detect from your accent a sort of a particularly interesting twang. So where are you in the world? I'm actually in North Wales, and well, I hope it's the Welsh twang that you're picking up on, because it could, <laughs> that could mean anything. But yes, North Wales, I'm Welsh, born and bred. It was my first language. Um, I didn't actually speak English till I was seven, um, so yes, yeah, very much um, Welsh born and bred. That's interesting because I, I saw on the news quite recently that um, there's a real move to support the Welsh language and actually having people speaking Welsh as a first language in Wales until the age of seven or something, is that right? Absolutely, I'm, I mean, I'm fortunate that in close to where I live we have the highest population of Welsh speakers. So in this particular area, you, you know, Welsh is so prevalent that you can actually go into any shop, start talking in Welsh, and somebody will talk back in Welsh to you. But it's not the same picture across Wales. Yeah. Um, and I, I think, you know, that there's legal requirements for people to use the language professionally, services and what have you. So I think, you know, it needs pushing to keep the language alive um, because, you know, it's part of our culture. And I think also at a very practical level, it's, um, it's, it's a real skill, it's, it's a real thing for brain and neuroplasticity, isn't it, to, be, to have language capability. And, oh, to, yeah. and to be able to learn a language and another language and another language and another language. And I, I, I think I can only see it as a positive thing, really. Absolutely. And I think bilingualism has been shown to help with brain plasticity, as you say. Um, I know that there's, um, there's research going on with dementia to suggest that bilinguals um, are less likely to develop, you know, um, symptoms of dementia and what have you. Um also, I think the Welsh language for this particular population in Wales, if somebody does suffer from a mental health problem or need care in the future, to be able to speak in your mother tongue is so important for somebody's, um, you know, response to health and, and, and care. And, you know, when we're stressed, when we're upset, we want to talk in our mother tongue. And so... You know, to have Welsh professionals working with the Welsh population, it's hugely important. Yeah, it's, and it's a, it's a fascinating point, isn't it? Because you often find people with um, the various forms of dementia sort of regress in terms of, you know, losing sort of current mental faculty and go back to um, childhood memories and childhood expressions and childhood linguistic capability. So making sure the language is kept alive is, is really important for those people who've learned it a while ago, I guess. Absolutely, and, and you know, there's a difference between um, translation and interpretation because the way you know I will speak in Welsh to somebody can be quite different to how I would say the same things in English, if you see what I mean. So you know, there's, there's nuances of differences that you may not be immediately aware of, but yeah. It's fascinating because I, I used to work in Wales I used to, many years ago. I used to work in Clandaff in uh, uh, southern Wales, Wales and. Uh, and of course, we English <laughs> always used to accuse the Welsh of speaking Welsh to exclude us. Now, whether that's oh, true yeah. or not, I think that's an English <laughs> thing, isn't it? Worldwide. 
well, yeah, it's that feeling that I think we all get if we're in a situation where we feel that we are being excluded. I think it's a natural response. Um, and so in whichever setting, that's what tends to happen. You know, even if you see a group of people whispering to each other and you're there alone, it can feel really isolating and can have a huge impact on you. So I can totally understand where that comes from, but it's not necessarily accurate in that that's why people will talk Welsh. For me, if I start, if I have a relationship with somebody who I always talk Welsh with, it's so difficult to change that into talking English with them. It's like I'm talking a foreign language to them. So, you know, there's lots of factors that come into to that, really. There's quite a lot of um, sort of work around this idea of social pain, you know, people like Mike, Matt Lieberman and such like, who who talk about this in-group, out-group effect and yes. how, you know, brain chemistry and dopamine is affected by being in the group. And, and oxytocin and serotonin actually impacts. And so this, this is actually really important, isn't it, to, to have, a, have a, an inclusive, inclusive and exclusive groups. And so that makes sense that you would find it difficult to switch from one language to another with, a, with the same group. Because actually part of what binds you together is this ability to be, be the same, I suppose, and use the same linguistic framework. It's that sense of belonging and, and you, you know... From my um, own uh, sort of academic background, my, my clinical background, um, I've seen so often that social relationships and that feeling of be belonging is so important to our well-being, you know, whether that's belonging to a family, belonging to a group of work colleagues, or even socially to a group of friends. I mean, even our pets can give us a sense of belonging and you, you know there's so much evidence out there to suggest that these connections can actually keep us mentally well um yeah. yes well, well I'm, I'm, I'm sort of struck by the fact we're already chatting away i have actually filled abysmally in my duty as host to sort of introduce you properly so <laughs> <laughs> judith um, <laughs> tell us a little bit about yourself what you do and um and what you're all about okay oh um big job so i'm a lecturer at Bangor University in North Wales. So as part of that role, I'm the director of the master's programme in clinical and health psychology. Um, and part of my um, sort of career as well is being a registered clinical psychologist. So I tend to try and combine both academic and clinical knowledge when I'm teaching students. I'm also active as a clinical psychologist as well so I work in a private capacity um, so all these experiences build up to me being able to talk about the you know the stuff that interests me and, and my main interest is in stress anxiety and health and how it all fits together and affects people um, so yeah so that in a nutshell that's my current um, series of roles that I fit into and mum I'm a mum as well <laughs> okay yeah fair enough <laughs> that's, that's, <laughs> that's also important well. <laughs> and um, for those that aren't quite sure what does what's what's a what's a clinical psychologist as opposed because obviously that will psychologists is bandied around a lot um, yeah. we've had occupational psychologists but how would you characterize a clinical psychologist well, a, a clinical psychologist is um, is concerned with 
all aspects of somebody's mental health, really. We, we're trained as scientist practitioners, which means that we keep a hand in current research within the field of mental health. Um, but we also are trained in having a therapeutic role with people as well. So in delivering different types of therapies such as CBT, um, ACT, DBT and so on and so forth. And of course, mindfulness is becoming popular now. So that's also something that can be part of our toolkit. Um, so, yes, we also do uh, neuropsychological testing, so we can have many strings to our bow, and once we're qualified, whichever services we tend to go into, and that can be anything from child, adults, learning disability, older adults, and so on and so forth, we then specialise in whatever interests us as professionals. So, so yes. <laughs> Interesting. So, so you've you've banded around a few sets of TLAs, three-letter acronyms. So, just can you just unpack those quickly because they're really important for people to understand. So, CBT. Would you just give us a a, a thumbnail on that? <laughs> CBT. So, CBT is cognitive behavioural therapy. Yeah. Um, so, this is a method that focuses very much on how we think how that impacts on our behaviour um, and in recognising those aspects we can support people to spot ways in which their thinking may not serve them in the best way. So that's how a CBT um, and CBT, therapist and would CB, work. And CBT is very, and I mean one of its key things is it's very, very rapid isn't it because it's, it's very toolkit driven. Yes, and, and I think there's a lot of onus on the individual to use those techniques in between sessions with their psychologist, therapist, whoever's delivering the CBT. So there'll be homework, there'll be set tasks on, you know, recording how they feel or think in different situations that's important to them. It's goal-driven, so goals are set at the beginning of where they would like to be at the end of the 6, 8, 12-week you know, um, period. Of course, yeah. What about, uh, AC, did you say ACT? <laughs> ACT, yes. Yeah. So ACT is um, Acceptance and Commitment Therapy. Um, now this is sort of, so if you look at the history of um, psychological therapies, in the 70s you had behaviourist type um, approaches. So it was all about people's behaviour and looking at the behaviour as being the focus of what you were doing. In the 80s, it was more about how we think and how that influences our behaviour. So then came CBT and behavioural cognitive techniques. In the, oh, I think it's more in the last 20 years, maybe 10 years, um, third wave therapies have come about and, and this is where mindfulness comes in and acceptance and commitment therapy is about accepting where you are in life and committing to making changes to reach where you want to be, whether that's overcoming some form of anxious thinking or some other situation that is causing you uh, mental distress. So, so yeah, so that's act in a very small nutshell there's far more to it than that no, it's just useful for people when they hear the terms doing this sort of sort of and i think the last one was bbt DB, <laughs> dbt is also uh one of the third wave therapies and that's um dialectical behavior therapy okay so this again is 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 used very much with um young adults who may 
have a personality disorder and it's about helping people um, develop techniques within their social relationships and regulate their emotions so they have healthier coping mechanisms when faced with distressing situations. So that's looking at, so it's looking at our dialect, what we're saying and how our behaviour interacts with that. Um, and so, yes, it's a very intensive therapy and there's lots of research to back it up with adolescents and young people. And so, clinic, and so clinical psychologists really are weaving the sort of the new, more scientific approaches into, into their practice. Um, how do you see the, um, the differences between the way counselling is moving forward and the way some of these practices are moving forward? Could you expand on that a bit? What do you mean with the way they're moving forward in, in terms of the changes and the types of therapies? Yes, the, sort of the use of the tools and the overlap of practice from one side to another. Because you often find that there's um, there are very traditional approaches to counselling, as this, yeah. this is described. And so you often see a counsellor having a talking therapy approach but not using CBT. Whereas what you seem to be doing is using a more um, sort of client-led, you know, someone comes and presents with in a certain series of issues and you'll use a different series of tools to work with them. It's more like the approach we use in coaching, for example. Yeah, yes, no, I, I get what you mean, absolutely. Um, so it's very individualised yes. and I think the focus of, of a clinical psychologist is basing what they do in, in the evidence base, so that's in research. So whatever interventions and therapies we use, you know, um, there's research being done to, to, you know, say how effective those therapies are. And, of course, that's what counsellors do as well. But I think a clinical psychologist is more about assessing that individual, looking at their particular needs, formulating what's going on for them. So a formulation is telling somebody's story. So it's looking at their background, what's going on for them now, what could be contributing towards the, the problem. So it's a full assessment of what's going on for them and sort of looking at ways in which you can help them in the most effective way. Now, of course, that's embedded in that psychologist's toolkit, if you like. You know, it's not as if we're masters of everything. We have our own leanings towards different techniques and therapies. And we're quite open about that as well. So, you know, um, if you were to see a psychologist on a private basis, they would tell you beforehand, this is the type of therapies I offer, um, this is what I can help you with, and it would then go on from there. And it can be quite confusing for people who are suffering from anxiety or depression, um, you know, to actually know how to, how to choose a, a professional to help them. Because some, oh. and then sometimes you're referred, so you have no choice. But but often, if you're selecting your own person, it's, it's, it is very it is very difficult to know what how to make a decision, basically, isn't it? Absolutely, and I, I think it's more than just what that psychologist offers. It's about personalities, and it's about how you feel in the room with that individual. You know, if you're going to be sharing some of your most innermost fears and um, and thinking with somebody, you have to feel comfortable with that person. And so I'm a big believer in, you know, if I have a first session with a client, I'll say, look, this is me, see how you get on. If you don't feel that I'm the right person for you, then please, please tell me, because I think people can feel, oh gosh, I can't say anything, it's too embarrassing, I don't want to upset them. But I think, you know, 
what I try and do is to say, look, I'm, I'm, I'm a tough cookie. It's okay. You can tell me if you don't think I'm the person to help you with this. And it's far easier to do that at the beginning than seven sessions down the line when somebody isn't, you know, feeling that it's actually helping them. And that can be based purely on the relationship between you. And, it's, and it can be tricky. And uh, it's, it's important to tell people this, especially... Um because actually, if you present, if you go somewhere and you say suffering a crisis of confidence or anxiety or depression, it's actually quite hard to have the bravery to say that to the person you're dealing with. But in a sense, we expect that, don't we? We expect to be told, and yeah. we, and it, and it's part of it is actually part of your um, it's part of the therapy in a sense, isn't it? To have the courage to say it. It, it is, and, and you know, part of the skill of, of being a therapist, whether that's being a psychologist or counsellor, is asking the right questions. You know, you don't know what you don't know. That's one of my, you know, main mantras in life. If you don't ask the question, you're not going to get the answer, so you're not going to find out what's going on. And sometimes people, if they're fixed in a certain way of thinking or belief about themselves, they're going to communicate that. They're not going to tell you about all the other stuff that's good or going on or that can support them. Mm. So part of the, you know, getting to know people is about unpacking all that stuff. It's not just about the bad stuff. It's about all the good stuff and looking at it as, 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 as a whole, mm. you know. Well, it's just stuff, isn't it? I mean, <laughs> yes. <laughs> once you end up deciding what it is, I mean, that's where the, it becomes interesting. So, so... So, talk to us. Obviously, you're lecturing about stress and anxiety in, psych- in clinical psychology, and you also have your own practice, which is what you said earlier. So, what's what's your particular angle in terms of stress? Because many people come at it from different points. So, so where do you, how do you describe it? How do you work with it? How do you deal with it? What do you, where's your starting point? Okay, I mean, the first thing I'd like to say about stress is I think it's a word that is so overused. And in any one day, I think we all use it to some extent, you know, how are you today? Oh, I'm a bit stressed. I've got this to do, that to do. And, you know, we have busy lives and it's just used in that context. But I think it has a more serious side to it as well. And I think um, when I'm working with people who tell me they're stressed, I like to talk to them about, well, what do you mean when you say stress? What does that mean to you? Um, and I want to share with you a quote, actually, uh, which is from a book by Philip Rice, uh, Stress and Health. And I'm not promoting this, but I think it's a lovely quote. Mm-hmm. And the quote is, um, the concept of stress is somewhat like the elusive concept of love. Everyone knows what the term means, but no two people would define it in the same way. Mm-hmm. So sometimes we have to unpack this stuff to actually understand what's going on for that individual. And, 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 that's, and that's so true, isn't it? Because it's actually just become a gateway expression. Yes. And, and I think that's the point, isn't it? And, and the trouble is when phrases become underused, they become devalued as well, don't they? So. Yes. You, you know, if I were to define it, if, if I was to give you my sort of overview and belief of what stress is, it would be something along the lines of... It's the perception we hold um, of our resources and coping skills to deal with different events, Mm. okay? So, you know, if we perceive something, so if somebody came into my office now who looked really angry, then that would, of course, make me scared and make me think, oh, my gosh, what's going on? And that would stress me. Now, that same person could be somebody I know and love, and I wouldn't have that same response. So no two people respond to the same thing in the same way. But it's all down to our perception. And 
not just our perception or how we look at the event itself, but actually how we believe we can cope. You know, are we somebody who thinks, oh, well, I can just, you know, run out the window, it's okay, it doesn't matter, or am I going to sit here thinking, oh my gosh, that's it, you know, I'm done for. So it's all about how we think about things. So it's it's interesting, because actually being stressed is, is the description of the psychological response going on within our bodies, in a sense. And then what you're saying is then what comes next is the 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 sort of um, perception of the resources available to deal with that physiological chemical mix response. that's happening. Yeah, I couldn't think of another word to say response. <laughs> I've got lost in all my responses. <laughs> yeah, but I mean that's interesting because you're characterising it. With, I think which is really practical by saying, well, actually, if I don't have, because actually, someone walking in can create and being shouting at you creates a sense of excitement for some reason. So you know, the stress response gives you the energy to deal to deal with it in a in an equally robust and challenging way. But what you were saying is, it's what you do with that energy that comes from your body that matters, isn't it? And you've brought me along to to the perfect point of where I want to go with next, actually, because, you know, we have this idea that all stress is bad, and that's not necessarily true, because what you picked up on there is that sometimes stress can give us the energy to actually get things done. So imagine, if you will, that I'm writing an essay and the deadline is 9 o'clock tomorrow morning. You know, I might be up till 1 o'clock in the morning writing this essay because I'm stressed. I don't want to fail. I don't want to miss the deadline. I don't want to have an unhappy lecture and so on and so forth. So that pushes me. And within, you know, domain of uh, teaching about this concept... One of the uh, most well-known models of it, if you like, is the Yerkes-Dodson Law, which was um, produced in 1908, which is quite a while back. But what it says is that there's this sort of, if we have no stress, then we might as well be sleeping. We're not going to have any energy to get up in the morning and get things done. Mm -hmm. Now, there's this optimal level of stress where we're performing on all cylinders, we've got the energy, we can get things done. But there's this sweet point that if the stress becomes too much, if we become anxious, then our performance begins to decline. And so the anxiety takes over and then, you know, we're in that state of nothing gets done and it just gets worse and worse. So that's how it's defined um, in the research. And that makes an enormous amount of sense because... This is where the emotional states of things like anxiety creep up on people if they're not aware of their emotional reactions to things. And and I, and I don't know what your belief is, but I mean, anxiety, which is often termed as the fear of the unknown, as opposed to fear, which is fear of the, of the known, that's the sort of the modern problem, isn't it? Because anxiety is, for example, just so much in the world today generates a, a, a consistent and beat rate of underlying anxious anxiety. And if you add on things like if you've got students and exams, pressures, money and all that sort of stuff, you know, never mind Brexit and all the other <laughs> things which are going on. And then just normal day-to-day living. There's a, there's a tick rate that's, that's, probably, that's probably here in our culture, which was different in the middle of the Second World War. If you ran outside of your house and said, oh, my goodness, you know, there's a bomb coming. That's fear. And you can deal with that because yeah. you, can, you, can, you can sort it now. But anxiety sort of eats away at you, doesn't it? And it's... It creates these sorts of energy imbalances and it knocks a sweet spot out of out of kilter. 
Absolutely. And, and so the way I would um, tell my students about the difference between anxiety and fear is anxiety is an apprehension about the future. Okay. It's thinking about the future and being anxious about what's going to happen. Fear is when a response to an immediate threat and it's a very physical response. Okay. Um, and it's the fight or flight response, isn't it? You know, it's an evolutionary response that we all have. So we've all had that moment where we might be driving in the car, something comes out in front of us, and all of a sudden you get this physical feeling of um, you start sweating, your heart starts beating, you know, the adrenaline's going. So you have that huge physical response. Now, you also then have the thinking about that event and how you perceive it. Um, and of course, that takes me back to my point about um, anxiety and, and how anxiety can lie on what we term dysfunctional assumptions, which is basically um, thinking about something in a way that doesn't serve us well. Mm. So having a fear of going in the car in the future because that's happened at that point, yeah? It can become a phobia if you think about it in a particular way. Yes, and it's it's fascinating, isn't it? Because when you know, I, when I was learning CBT, we used to call it thinking errors. Yes. And I know it's probably it's not the most politically correct way of calling it now. I'm sure it's a better term. But it's true, isn't it? We, we get into patterns of thinking which are learned or you know inherited in some way. Yeah. And and that's the and that's the secret to this, isn't it? There are very simple recoding exercises we can take to even to to help us even with the most significant fears and anxieties. Absolutely, and I think you use the word learning there, and it is, you know, therapy is all about, you know, I describe therapy as holding somebody's hand while you walk with them and support them in looking at things in a different way and learning to look at things in a different way. So you're not telling people the answer to their problems, you're not telling people um, how to deal with things, what you're doing is saying, look, what other ways do you have of thinking about things? You know, what other, you know, aspects of your personality do you have that can help you here? And by doing that, you're bringing it back to them and they're actually learning skills of how to deal with similar situations in the future. So it's very much about walking with somebody as opposed to telling somebody what to do. And that's how I, I lecture as well. I, I really believe that teaching is very much about walking with students and taking them where they want to go. Because at the end of the day, there might be somebody sat out there who's going to end up being far more clever than me on, in terms of anxiety and stress and might well move the research forward. So I'm not going to assume that I have all the knowledge at that point. Yeah. Well, that's, so, that's the whole point of teaching and learning, isn't it, to, to hand on the baton, isn't it? That's, the, that's, that's what's so exciting about it. So you mentioned earlier that someone might rock up, meet you and say, hey, I'm stressed, and then you begin to <laughs> unpack that. So what are the sorts of things that you can find lurking under the surface that you've had to deal with and, you know, which you can help, which, which we as therapists and you can help with? Um, so in terms of how I would support somebody who came with their suitcase of stress, as I like to look at it, and, you know, starts unpacking it in front of me, you know, stress can be something that, um, and you mentioned, uh, you know, about war and bombs, and those are big life events. And what I think we need to realise as well is that we have daily hassles. That's what it's called in the research. So, you know, the bus not being on time or getting to work and your boss having put a load of things on your desk that they want doing then and then, you know, the, the kids arguing, stuff that happens on a daily basis that you may not, you know, put any sort of 
you don't think of it at the time as being, oh, God, this is so stressful. But altogether, it can actually have a huge impact on your well-being. Um, and, and well-being is what helps us in tackling stressful events and sort of being able to respond in the healthiest way for us. Um, so, and, and so what do you mean by well-being? Because it's, a, it's a, one of those phrases I get. Well, I get quite because it's it's just bandied all over the place, a bit like stress, but <laughs> yeah. but, but even even more vague. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, well, it is. But I, th- I think that reflects the fact that again, well-being is very personal to that individual and what's important to them and their personality. Um, but if I were to quote to you what the World Health Organization says well-being is, and I'll quote it to you now, so health is a state of complete physical, mental and social well-being and not merely the absence of disease or infirmity. And then to go on to actual well-being, which is included in that particular quote, psychological well-being consists of positive relationships with others, personal mastery, autonomy and feeling of purpose and meaning in life and personal growth and development. So, that's a whole load of things, you know, that, that, that doesn't define it in any way, shape or form, does it? And it hasn't even, um, got, it hasn't even got happiness in it. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, but fundamentally, I, I think um, if you were to go on any website that talks about mental health, such as the Mind website, for, for example, which is a fabulous resource for all things mental health, you'd have a list of steps to mental well-being and this would be stuff like connecting so actually talking to people and being part of other people's lives um, unfortunately when we become stressed upset anxious maybe depressed the last thing we want to do is talk to people we want to hide away you know get the duvet over us and just not have any contact at all and that's actually the worst thing that we can do um, in terms of our social relationships and the support we get from them. Um, Another step to mental well-being is being active. So we all know the the benefits of physical exercise and how that can have um, a positive effect on our bodies, but it also has a positive effect on our minds. And you can actually combine that with it being a social event as well. So if you do a team sport, then you're getting that connecting with people as well as exercise. So it's, it's all good. Um, learning, you know, keeping your mind active is such an important way of feeling that you have some meaning in life, that you're actually moving forward. I think being in the academic field, if you like, you know, you get to a certain point where you get a PhD and you think, okay, where do I go from here? Well, you don't stop learning. Um, I've never stopped learning. I'm always looking at new questions, new things that are coming along. You know, I'm looking at doing other courses because I just love being a student. I love learning. Um, so even if you're not an academic, you can still learn. You can learn a new hobby. You can learn a new craft. Um, teaching others can be a very positive thing for well-being as well so share your skills with others Um, and that takes me on to another step to well-being which is giving to people so being somebody who can either volunteer if you want to do it formally or just knocking on the door of a neighbor and saying are you okay how are you today it can actually help you with your own well-being Um, and I think one of the final steps I'd like to share about being you know, keeping our well-being going, is to be mindful. So 
and I don't mean just using mindfulness, I mean actually being in the moment as opposed to being scared of what's going to happen in the future or focusing on what's been going on in the past. What's happening in the here and now, you know, enjoy life for what it is now because it's actually happening. (laughs) So connecting in the here and now and connecting with others around you is very important. I I think that's fascinating. And um, I mean, years ago, I remember learning timeline therapy. And um, and it was it was all very you know funky at the time you know we were just yeah. you know we used to talk about this idea of the future and the past, and um, and Eckhart Tolle's work about the power of now and all that sort of stuff coming yeah. up from the practitioner base I accept rather than the research base, but but it is the point isn't it it's we we're so busy rushing around thinking about tomorrow and yesterday we yeah. really have lost the plot when it comes to just actually just looking out the window and going, do you know, that's really lovely. I was chatting to Janet this morning, one of my colleagues, I know you know, and she's, yeah. she's got a budgie that was <coughs> chattering away in the background. And um, and it's just actually fascinating just to listen to that because it's it's just gorgeous. And you forget, you forget just it's okay to be, just, you know, survey where you are now and be just, I mean, I don't want to get all spiritual about it, but it's almost thankful for, you know, what we've got rather than the millions of things we don't have and probably wouldn't have anyway. But, you know, we sort of lose sight of that, don't we? We've, we've in the pursuit of having everything we want, we forgot to, you know, we've lost sight of what we've got. Absolutely. Um, and <laughs> talking of animals... And you mentioned cats earlier before this recording began, and I'm looking at a picture of a cat at the moment, bizarrely. And it's just, you know how cats just flop, don't they? Cats can put them in any shape, and they will mould themselves into that shape, and they're just so chilled. I think we can be more like cats and just, you know, take what life throws us as mould ourselves into that situation as best we can and just let it float over us, you know? Yeah, that's a brilliant way of thinking about it. In fact, I was in Manchester at the beginning of this week and saw one of the famous cat cafes. I don't know if you've come across them, where you get, I think it's six quid and you spend half an hour with drinks and, <laughs> and a cat on your lap. I mean, that's for me, that's heaven. <laughs> yeah, 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 absolutely. Because I, I can just imagine, you know, even if you imagine having a cat on your lap, it makes you feel immediately better. Yeah. Um, because just the thought of stroking, you, you know, a cat and the sensation of that, and it just keeps you present. It keeps yeah. you in that moment. And it was, um, it was funny, though, because I was watching the, um, the morning news this morning with some woman stroking an alligator, so that was her thing. <laughs> We're all different. If an alligator does it for you, then that's all well and good. You know, we all, that's the thing, isn't it? Stress is different for everybody. What well-being is is different for everybody. And what a fluffy pet is is also different. And I think, and I think sort of, um, I think the echo of what you were talking about earlier, this idea of belonging is so important. I think it's really stuck with me as you've been talking. And this idea of belonging to the present, you know, belonging to different social groups, you know, mm. having exercise and learning and such like, it gives you different communities to, to be there. And this idea of belonging is actually quite key in terms of what you're talking about in terms of stress and well-being, because mm. you don't have to be on your own. And the first sign in terms of what we talk about resilience is this idea of asking for help as a, and seeing that as a sign of strength. And then, you know, seeing that relationships are things you belong to and that they, that has a purpose for itself, in itself. Absolutely. And you just have to look at cultures where there are big families and, you know, grandparents, parents, 
children all live in the same sort of house and they have the best well-being because they learn from each other. They learn how to cope with different events and they learn how to turn to each other for support and they never get this feeling of isolation. And I think you know, within the UK, the culture that we have here now, you can be living next door to somebody and never actually connecting with them because it's not what we do. Um, so it's just important to think about ways in which you can connect with others if you don't have that family network or you don't have, you know, you might work in an office on your own. So how do you then go about connecting with people? Well, you know, there are lots of different ways. It's, it's about being creative and about, you know, thinking of ways you can actually carry that out. And it's interesting, Judith, because we were talking again before this podcast about this rise in male suicide. And um, and it's really interesting, isn't it? Because there is. it's also true that you can be in the middle of a, a large family group or, you know, a large team and still feel as if you don't belong. And that yeah. can drive this perception where there is no choice, you know, a sense of hopelessness, depression, and, you know, potentially even suicide. And it's something we really need to get a grip of because this is something that's becoming an issue. Because if you often find gender, but gender-wise, that women are great at talking about their feelings and expressing this sort of thing in, you know, in, in the sort of settings we've talked about. But I just, mm-hmm. I just don't know it's working so well for guys at the moment. And this rise in male suicide and this this sort of natural ability to belong seems to be getting lost somewhere. And I just wonder, I just wonder, you know, somehow, somehow we need to rethink some of these strategies for, for a different client group in a way. Absolutely. And you know that, and I mentioned this to you earlier, but the lead singer of a band, Linkin Park, you know, Chester Bennington has um, just recently committed suicide at the age of 41. And this is somebody who is very much in the public domain, you know, who um, has arena packed full of fans, people who love him. Um but yet he committed suicide. And, and it makes you wonder, that point you made earlier about you can be in a group of people, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you feel connected to them. So, yes, I, I think from a, a male perspective, and, and you know, also males from the ages of you know, older adolescents up to the age of 25, that's the highest rate of suicide amongst the population as a whole. Mm. It's males within that age range. So, you know, and I know there are services out there being set up to help this population, but I think it should be talked about more. I think we should have it as part of our conversations and, you know, teaching people, whether they're male or female, that it's okay to talk about this stuff and it's not a sign of weakness and and that it's a natural thing to feel and it's not wrong and it's, you know, it's not something that shows you to be a person lacking in particular um, skills. Um, but just being open, having it as part of conversations, you know. Judith, you know, I often say this, but I, I particularly mean it today. I've just noticed at the time, and I thought <laughs> I thought we'd been chatting for about ten minutes. It turns out we've been we've been for ages. I, mean, I really thoroughly enjoy what we've been gossiping about, and um, I'm hoping we can reconvene this. I know we sort of broadly talked about maybe doing some, you know, some more um, online materials together, but I'd really like the opportunity to do that because I think. Um, I think we've got some real big things we could continue to unpack here. 
Absolutely. So, look, I want to say thank you so much for your time today. Um, if people would like to get hold of you, obviously you're, um, as you say, at Bangor University and um, you'll have your own practice. But I think probably the easiest way if anyone wants to contact Judith is to come through us and we can put you in touch because I know you're not set up at the moment to be a, an online presence. Is that, is, yes. that, is that the case? It, it, it is. <laughs> um, yes, I'm not a media person at the moment, I, I, you know. <laughs> So uh, we'll see where this takes us, but I'd be more than happy to, you know, keep this um, relationship going and actually sharing these ideas in the future. So yes. Perfect. So Judith, I really enjoyed that, and thanks so much for your time. I've, I, I think it's been fascinating, and I, I know we sort of um, we've gone around the house a little bit, but I think you've talked really, uh, in, really cleverly about some of these things and really brought them to life in a, a very understandable way. And that's 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 something that's tough to do. So thank you for that. And um, let's let's stay in touch and hopefully let's talk again soon. Absolutely. Thank you so much for the opportunity to do this. I really appreciate it. And thank you. Take care. Thanks. Thanks for listening today. I hope we really got some value from that. I certainly enjoyed it myself. Remember, there's only other podcasts and with tools and techniques, different speakers and different resources available in this series of Resilience and Ravel. So please feel free to subscribe. Why not also drop across to Facebook and join our group, Resilience Unraveled, and join in the conversation. Also, if you wanted to whip over to iTunes and drop us a, a preview or a review, that would be fantastic. Thanks ever so much. You can get hold of us at qedod.com or at personalresilience.com, where you can get hold of free ebooks, resources, some online courses, and even some coaching. But whatever happens, I look forward for you joining us on the next edition of Resilience Unraveled. Thank <laughs> you.